The more you look at Amazon, the more you realise that its convenience comes with a real cost. Because think about it, we used to have to drive to stores to buy things. Now those things are brought directly to us and they're somehow cheaper. That didn't just happen with a clever algorithm. It happened by creating a system that squeezes the people lowest on the ladder hard. Uh, what we are seeing all over this country is the decline in retail. Uh, we're seeing this incredibly large company getting involved in almost every area of commerce. And I think it is important uh, to take a look at the power and influence that Amazon has. I think uh, the thing to do is not so much nationalize as socialize, put them in the hands of their workforce and communities, not ruled by some bureaucrat in Washington. Before the 90s, if you heard the name Amazon, most people would have envisioned a beautiful, lush, tropical rainforest in South America. Now, when it's mentioned, most people would likely picture the multinational technology corporation based out of Seattle, Washington. Yes, the very same company that last year reached the valuation of over $1 trillion. Just think about that for a minute. A trillion dollars. To better put a number like that into perspective, if you were able to go back a billion seconds from now, you'd be in the year 1989 when the World Wide Web itself was just created. Now go back a trillion seconds. You'd be in the year 30,000 BC, when our species were merely hunters and gatherers, and it would be another 15,000 years before the colonization of North America from Asia. Yeah, a trillion dollars. It's a lot of dough. And with those kinds of figures comes even more power. Remember, with great power comes great responsibility. But what exactly is Amazon doing with all that power, profit, and influence? And more importantly, with the responsibility and human side of things. In this episode, I'll be your guide and take you back to the humble beginnings of Jeff Bezos and his tech powerhouse to fully understand how it has evolved into one of the most recognized brands in the world today. And what that evolution could mean for the world tomorrow. You're listening to... Progressive Behavior, a thought-provoking podcast for a more just future. Let me start by introducing myself. My name's Corey, and my professional experience comes from working in the world of digital media and advertising. You could say I've worked in every part of the kitchen, so I know how the sausage gets made. From developing strategies to help land Fortune 500 companies, all the way to grinding it out with startups and helping new brands compete with the big boys and girls. I'd also like to think of myself as an inspiring activist as well, fighting the good fight for truth and knowledge over power and influence. Now let's begin our journey by taking you back to 1994, when a youthful 30-year-old Bezos was working as a senior VP for D.E. Shaw, a Wall Street-based investment banking and tech firm that touts itself as combining the excitement of a startup with the resources of an industry leader. Even with the firm's rather entrepreneurial spirit and the fact that Bezos was already making a handsome salary, he acknowledged that he was missing a sense of urgency in his professional life. So he did what any sensible Wall Street executive would do. He quit and opened up an online bookstore in the 90s. Well, it wasn't quite as impulsive as that. 
he had been observing an emerging trend of rapid annual growth for an industry still in its infancy, the World Wide Web. Ah, who doesn't miss that sound? Here's Bezos explaining why he started Amazon in his 2010 commencement speech at Princeton, his alma mater. I came across the fact that web usage was growing at 2,300% per year. I had never seen or heard of anything that grew that fast. The idea of building an online bookstore with millions of titles, something that simply couldn't exist in the physical world, was very exciting to me. So, with this newfound knowledge as his driving force, he was given $300,000 to invest from his parents' private savings, and thus, Amazon was born. And did you know the company's first name was actually Cadabra, which was intended to reference the word abracadabra? Yes, the things magicians say before pulling a rabbit out of their hat or sawing a person in half. His first lawyer pointed out that the reference was too obscure, Plus, on the phone, some people heard cadaver instead, so the name was changed as a nod to the Amazon River, and the rest was history. Well, not quite. Did you also know that Amazon didn't end up generating its first quarterly profit until seven years later what? in the final quarter of 2001? It was clear at the outset that Bezos needed to diversify and commit to a long-term growth strategy if his internet company was ever going to survive and prosper. To fully grasp how Amazon was able to grow so rapidly and efficiently, like very few other companies before it, you have to understand the delicate and calculated process of how businesses enlarge and vary their product lines and fields of operation, a process better known as diversification. But more importantly, it helps to know the difference between related and unrelated diversification. Related is when a business adds or expands a product line or expands onto a new market. And unrelated is when a business expands by adding an entirely new or unrelated product. Easy enough, right? So in 1998, Amazon expanded out its related diversification offerings into music, videos, and other consumer goods. And just a few years later, in 2002, Bezos led the company to launch Amazon Web Services, which initially focused on compiling data from weather channels and website traffic. But we'll talk more about AWS a little later. Believe it or not, the company actually was on the brink of bankruptcy that year, but it rebounded a year later in 2003, even after several distribution center closures and a massive workforce layoff. In February of 2005, one of Amazon's most trademark programs was created, Amazon Prime, which started out as a service where members paid $79 a year for free two-day shipping. This bold move launched Amazon from just selling books and DVDs to becoming the new king of online shopping. In September of 2006, Amazon launched Prime Video. Originally called Amazon Unbox in the US, the online streaming service grew with an expanding library and added the Prime Video membership upon the development of Prime subscriptions. They now primarily distribute films and TV series produced by Amazon Studios or licensed to Amazon as Prime Originals, with the service also hosting content from other providers, offering content add-ons, and dabbling in live sports. Then in November of 2007, Amazon launched the Kindle. Connecting your mouse to your front door was our moon landing. Creating Kindle, our four-minute mile. This reinvented how easily everyone from scholars to casual readers were able to access their favorite reads 
without the hassle of dealing with paperback books and manuscripts. Walt Mossberg, the Wall Street Journal columnist widely credited with pioneering the modern consumer-focused technology review, puts it plainly. Look, it was the first shot at something that was really important and became important. When you think of e-readers, you think of Kindle. It's just, it's like Kleenex. And that's really a testament to what they did here. This innovative new product propelled Amazon to the front of the e-reader marketplace. And remember, the first iPad wouldn't even be available to consumers for another three years. Even with all the success for Amazon, not everything was smooth sailing for Bezos. A couple years later in 2009, he went through a very messy, very public divorce with Mackenzie Bezos, his wife of 25 years whom he had four children with. After all was said and done, and as part of the settlement, Mackenzie walked away with 25% of the couple's Amazon stock, which gave her a 4% stake in the company. Her fortune amounted to around $38 billion and has more recently grown to over $60 billion. Now, going by Mackenzie Scott, she was quoted as saying she would give at least half of her fortune away to charity. And Mackenzie has already started holding up to that promise, giving away $4.2 billion in a four-month span alone. She wrote in a blog post, this pandemic has been a wrecking ball in the lives of Americans already struggling, adding that she had handpicked more than 380 charities to donate to. In the end, Bezos treated his marriage split more like a speed bump in the road as he raced to build his global e-commerce empire. And in November of 2014, it was... Alexa, I was launched as a virtual assistant AI technology first used in the Amazon Echo smart speakers capable of voice interaction, music playback, creating to-do lists, setting alarms, streaming podcasts, playing audiobooks, and providing real-time information, I revolutionized how people all over the world could interact with their Amazon smart devices. And a fun fact for you. Did you know that all the way back in 1961, IBM actually created the first speech recognition tool, the IBM Shoebox? It could recognize 16 words and digits and was essentially the great-grandfather to Alexa. Okay, so now that you fully understand the difference between related and unrelated diversification, let's make sure you grasp the importance of mergers and acquisitions when it comes to explaining how Amazon's name became so ubiquitous throughout the world. Mergers and acquisitions are general terms used to describe the consolidation of companies or assets through various types of financial transactions. What you need to know is that mergers and acquisitions have been just as integral to Bezos and the rise of Amazon as the products and services they created themselves. Overall, they have acquired over 100 companies to date and hold ownership stake in another 20 more. Amazon made some critical moves in 1998 when it purchased three popular internet companies. Bookpages, the leading internet bookstore in the UK at the time, Telebook, the leader in online books in Germany, and the Internet Movie Database now more commonly known by its acronym IMDB, where you go to when you can't remember that person's name that played that favorite character in that 90s movie. <laughs> it wasn't until later in the 2000s that Bezos and his team really ramped up their diversification and acquisition efforts. In 2008, they acquired Audible for $300 million cash, which at the time was already the largest online seller of audiobooks. And in 2009, it was Zappos. This is a very exciting day. Um, Zappos is a company that I have long admired, uh, and for a very uh, important reason. You know, Zappos has a customer obsession, um, which is so easy for me to admire. 
The shoe and apparel e-commerce giant that distinguished themselves from their competitors by putting company culture above all else. At the time, they paid 100% of healthcare premiums for all employees, invested heavily on personal development, and gave customer service reps more freedom than any of your typical call centers. In 2011, it was Lovefilm, the UK's most popular video streaming provider. In 2012, it was Kiva Systems, which developed and manufactured robotic systems and specialized in automated storage and retrieval. And in 2013, Bezos shifts his acquisition sites to the media. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos sent a thunderbolt through the media world this week with a surprise purchase of the Washington Post. The paper that brought down Nixon and has been breaking news for more than a century this week made news. After 80 years, the Graham family sold the Washington Post for $250 million to Amazon founder and CEO Jeff Bezos. In 2014, it was Twitch Interactive, which was acquired after a bidding war with Google. Twitch is the world's leading live streaming platform for gamers, commanding a large, deeply engaged audience throughout the world. In 2017, it was Whole Foods, which was by far their biggest acquisition in terms of money at $13.7 billion. In 2017 and 2018, they shifted their focus to home security systems by acquiring Blink Home and Ring. Also in 2017, it was Souk.com, spelled S-O-U-Q.com, which is an English-Arab language e-commerce platform, the largest in the Arab world. In 2018, they purchased PillPack for $753 million, which is an online pharmacy that allowed them to ship prescription medications overnight. And recently, Bezos' focus has been on vehicles of the future. In February of 2019, Amazon was a part of a $530 million round of funding for Aurora, an autonomous vehicle technology startup whose co-founders include the former technical lead of Google's self-driving car program, Waymo, the former head of Uber's autonomy and perception team, and Tesla's former lead of the autopilot division. That very same month, they led a $700 million investment round into Rivion, a Michigan-based electric truck startup, and a rival to Tesla. And in June of 2020, Amazon bought the self-driving tech company, Zooks. The price that Amazon paid was north of a billion dollars, making it one of Amazon's biggest deals. And opportunistic, Zooks was last valued in the private markets at $3.2 billion. Now, Amazon could actually develop its own autonomous ride-hailing fleet, and that would pit it against Alphabet's Waymo and Uber and Lyft at a time when those ride-sharing companies are scaling back on autonomous vehicle spending amid the pandemic. But you don't need a formal conspiracy right. when interests converge. These people went to the same universities oh, and please. fraternities. They're on the it's same boards of directors. They're in the same country clubs. They have like interests. They yes. don't need to call a meeting. They know what's good for them. It's a and they're getting it. And there, there used to be this... seven oil companies. There are now three. It will soon be two. The things that matter in this country have been reduced in choice. There are two political parties. There are a handful of insurance companies. There are about six or seven information things. But if you want a bagel, there are 23 flavors because you have the illusion. You have the illusion of choice. Right. You don't get the real important choice. There's no freedom of choice. So this is the part of the story where we start directing our focus on the influence and impact of Amazon. Important questions have to be raised. How much global influence is too much influence? Does a company of this size and market control need to be more closely regulated? And why should we even care? 
What is the real impact on my life? You don't need a crystal ball for these. All of the answers we're looking for can be found by simply analyzing Bezos' track record over the past 16 years Amazon has been around. That's the true crystal ball. I constantly remind our employees to be afraid to wake up every morning terrified. Our customers have made our business what it is and we consider them to be loyal to us. Right up until the second that someone else offers them a better service. This was how Bezos described his leadership style at Amazon in a shareholder letter he wrote back in 1999. Sounds rather ominous when she reads it, right? What's really scary is how extraordinarily Bezos and many other billionaires have profited during COVID-19, which has triggered an economic crisis of a magnitude not seen since the Great Depression. USA Today created a list that broke down the individual wealth growth of the top 30 billionaires during the pandemic. This is a list that includes names like Charles Koch of Koch Industries, Michael Bloomberg, along with Jack Dorsey of Twitter and Square, Alice Jim and Rob Walton, heirs to the Walton fortune, Bill Knight of Nike, Bill Gates of Microsoft, Zuckerberg at Facebook, and Elon Musk with Tesla and SpaceX. And Jeff Bezos tops that formidable list. From March through October of 2020 alone, Bezos increased his net worth by more than $90 billion. That's an increase of over 80%, nearly doubling his total net worth to over $200 billion. And Elon Musk was a far off second place, amassing $30 billion less than the Amazon founder and 2020's holiday season will only add to Bezos' fortune. It was reported that Amazon merchants posted $4.8 billion in global sales from Black Friday through Cyber Monday, a 60% surge from last year. Now, almost a year after the pandemic started, greater than 11 million Americans still remain unemployed. A study from the Pew Research Center found another chilling statistic that unemployment rates rose higher in three months of COVID than it did in two years of the Great Recession. So the idea that Amazon hauled in over $14 billion in profits in 2002, second only to Walmart, is pretty astounding. That's total profits, with expenses and operating costs factored in. With everything going on in the U.S. and in the world, Amazon grew $14 billion richer. And that was just for January through September. With all those profits generated by a workforce that's being pushed to their limit while also risking their health and safety by simply showing up to work, one would assume that the founder and CEO that has financially benefited to a level never seen before would take care of these workers in every possible way, right? Well, not as much as you'd think. But before you lead with that notion that the billionaires themselves create most of the value for their respective multinational corporations, just consider this scenario proposed by Jacobin Magazine. Imagine what would happen if every retail worker in the US took the day off. Even during a non-pandemic year, the economic consequences would be massive. Millions of consumers unable to purchase basic goods and the sudden drop in sales quickly sending shockwaves through the marketplace. To say nothing of the chaos that would ensue at thousands of individual stores across America as hapless corporate managers desperately tried to keep their doors open and their lights on without any employees present to perform their usual tasks. 
without the approximately 4.6 million retail workers stocking shelves, bagging groceries, cleaning stores, and fulfilling warehouse orders during the pandemic, the economy as we know it would collapse and catastrophe would loom. Let's be clear. The people are the most vital mode of production for these massive companies that create billionaires. So would it surprise you that Amazon, a company that tripled its profits in the third quarter of last year alone, ended its meager $2 per hour pay increase in the end of May 2020. And for additional compensation, they paid out a small bonus stipend at the end of June, and then again when they distributed a holiday bonus of around $150 after taxes were taken out. But it's important to note that none of those bonuses or even the $2 pay increase were technically hazard pay. The $2 per hour was nothing compared to what the other part of that policy enacted which was overtime being double time instead of one and a half. That's because it wasn't hazard pay. It was designed to boost staffing levels to keep up with customer orders, incentivizing people to come in more. Hazard pay is paying workers more as compensation for increased risk and hazards on the job. So in reality, it should have been more something like five to $10 per hour increase across the board. So by design, this policy was fitting more people into crowded warehouses during a pandemic. Keep in mind when they started this, they didn't even have systems set up to check temps, social distance, or distribute masks. Along with terminating those wage increases, at one point it was reported that Amazon had a policy of only supplying warehouse workers with one protective mask per shift, forcing employees to work through already strenuous working conditions and excessive heat in fulfillment centers, requiring them to walk many miles per day. Integrity Staffing Solutions, a Delaware hiring firm that staffs 22 of Amazon's corporate offices and fulfillment centers, even created a brochure that warns, you will be on your feet the entire shift and walking upwards of 12 miles per shift. So just put yourself in these employees' shoes. You're walking 12 miles a shift during a pandemic, possibly wearing the same protective mask covering all day long under rather demanding and suspect conditions at times, getting paid exactly the same as you did before these extreme circumstances. I know what you're probably thinking. Why don't these workers just get together and demand better treatment from Bezos and their higher-ups? Well, because they're strictly not allowed to unionize. At all. Amazon has resisted unionization within its workforce since its founding in 1994. It even crushed union efforts in Seattle in 2000 and again in Delaware in 2014. And in 2019, they are reported to have fired at least four workers in three states who had criticized the company publicly and were involved in trying to unionize. This has led to many cases where Amazon employees have outright quit and even organized mass walkouts, which is what happened in 2019 at a fulfillment center in Minnesota. The workers starting to talk with each other and starting to like think, like, what can we do to try and fix this and starting to plan, which eventually became a walkout. You need to understand that these people can't keep getting treated like robots. They're people too. They have families to provide for. So we found one of those fulfillment center workers who helped organize the Minnesota walkout and talked to him. Meet Tyler Hamilton. He started off in the stow department and worked his way over to the pick department. Listen to him describe his experience working for Amazon in the time leading up to that walkout in 2019. I'm not a college graduate. I don't have that kind of money. When I came to work at Amazon, after about a year or so, changes happening in the workplace, rates going up, support staff, you know, water spiders, we call them, being cut. People not being happy with that, being upset because they're making our jobs harder and giving us more work for the same pay. 
All of these issues inevitably forced Tyler and his coworkers to take action, demanding better work treatment. But even with these walkouts and concerns, it seems clear that Amazon is mainly worried about one thing. It's PR. It's all PR. They want their public relations to look good because they're scared that policymakers are going to come down on them. If you were to go back and look at articles uh, talking about, hey, there's this strike that happened or there's a walkout and you see the Amazon spokesperson and they maybe they give a count for how many people walked out. I've been at a number of those and the, the spokespeople, their only job is PR. They'll gladly lie to the media like it doesn't matter. They regularly try to undercount how many people there are. I, I've had, you know, 50 people walk out of a department and, you know, 50 people walk out. I'm physically there. I see the people. I hear the managers on the radio is going, yep, yeah, you know, 45, 49 people, blah, 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 blah. Keep an eye out if they come back in. And the, the spokesperson will be like, oh, yeah, there was 20 people that walked out. It's not a majority of anyone's opinions. Now, 50 workers out of a couple thousand in an entire fulfillment center might not sound like a lot, but here's Tyler explaining the true impact. But that's spread across different shifts and different departments. And those departments, it's along a chain. It's like an assembly line. If enough people walk out of one portion of that chain, it shuts down the whole assembly line. After hearing that, it probably wouldn't surprise you to know that in October of 2020, a leaked confidential company memo surfaced to reveal that Amazon is using advanced software to internally track and stomp out union-forming activities. After reviewing the findings from the leak, Rebecca Givens, a leading professor at the Rutgers School of Management and Labor Relations, warned employees, from an organizing perspective, the Amazon employees should assume everything they're talking about is being monitored and everything that they're writing is feeding into the tracking software algorithm. So it's safe to say that Amazon is terrified of unions, but this trend of less employees having a voice all over the country and in many of these multinational corporations is another issue in itself. Just last year, the Economic Policy Institute reported that the share of workers covered by a collective bargaining agreement dropped from 27% to 11.6% between 1979 and 2019 meaning the union coverage rate is now less than half of where it was 40 years ago. But it's not just Amazon Fulfillment Center laborers in the U.S. that are experiencing poor working conditions. It's happening all over the world and even at their subsidiary companies as well. According to a recent Financial Times article, Ring Security call center workers, who are Amazon contracted workers, warned of subhuman conditions at a Philippines call center, where workers say coronavirus travel restrictions left them sleeping in close quarters on makeshift beds. In their letter, workers said conditions had become subhuman after the travel ban meant staying at their location was their only option if they wished to get paid. Our choices are between going to work or else to starve, the letter said. And you are all aware that in this desperate time, we will choose the former. But that does not excuse you from your responsibility to treat us fairly as human beings. With all that said, it's safe to say employees need some help in forcing the hand of CEOs and multinational companies to enact proper and adequate policies. So in 2018, after mounting pressure, Amazon raised the minimum wage it pays all workers to $15 an hour which was subsequently following criticism from Senator Bernie Sanders over conditions in the company's warehouses. And concerns about Amazon don't just stop at working conditions for their labor force, but also with their trusted technology. Remember Amazon Web Services? 
That same public cloud infrastructure vendor now has grown to be one of the biggest and most utilized in the world, alongside Microsoft's Azure and the Google Cloud Platform. At AWS, customer trust is our top priority, reads the beginning to their data privacy page. They go on to tout that their customers include financial services providers, healthcare providers, and governmental agencies who trust them with their most sensitive information. But recently, a sustained cyber attack on AWS's network shows just how vulnerable data in their cloud really is, even for an advanced technology company like Amazon. All right, here's what happened. AWS experienced a DDoS attack. The basic premise of any attack like this one is to generate so much junk traffic for any particular system that it causes the target, Amazon in this case, to crash or halt all operations. This type of sustained attack on an IP address is routine by now and is mainly successful when carried out against smaller companies without the ability to defend themselves against this targeted security strike. However, it takes an overwhelmingly large amount of traffic to take down a large system, and especially one as large as Amazon Web Services, which is why they are so rare. And yet, that is exactly what happened in mid-October of 2020, when AWS servers were hit by the cyber assault and their network was left crippled and exposed. We implicitly trust these companies like Amazon and Google and Microsoft because we start to associate their names with speed and convenience and most of all, trust. It reminds me of a quote my old high school English teacher used to say, to be trusted is a greater compliment than to be loved. It's a quote by George MacDonald, a Scottish author, and he's not wrong in comparing the significance of trust. Trust is the most crucial part of any relationship and should be just as important for the companies that you choose to do business with. Trust that they will do their best to protect you. Trust that they have all your best interests at heart. And finally, trust that they're doing all that they can to operate in an ethical fashion. And for Amazon, whose mission statement is to be Earth's most customer-centric company, it has to be understood that they're already having a significant impact on the Earth itself. So if they want to lay claim to the planet, then you need to be aware of everything their operations are involved in. Would it be news to you to know that Amazon has been working very closely with the fossil fuel industry? Yep. And so are the other big tech companies we mentioned earlier, Microsoft and Google. Greenpeace USA advocate Elizabeth Jardim explains that in order to slow down further catastrophic harm to the earth from these companies, we need to undercut and expose these shady, vague partnerships with the oil and gas industry. Jardim reveals that big tech has been wooing big oil for the promise that machine learning and other AI capabilities will help them find and extract oil and gas more effectively. It's true. The oil and gas industry has been spending roughly $20 billion every year on cloud services, which accounts for about 10% of the entire cloud market, according to the managing director for Accenture's energy consultancy. The big tech giants have been competing with one another to strike lucrative partnerships with ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell, BP, and other top energy firms, in many cases supplying them with not just remote data storage, but also for those aforementioned AI tools that Jardim referenced for pinpointing drilling spots and speeding up the refinery production. With all that said, it's really hard to keep up with these claims Amazon and other big tech players have been pushing out, 100% renewable energy, zero emissions, carbon neutral, carbon negative, and so on. So long as the data center companies are still operating on fossil fuels, they should not claim to be 100% renewable. Making these rash declarations only undercuts long-term ambitions and are deceptively successful in misleading the public. It's important to know what these claims really mean and start considering the fine print. 
If these extremely large companies are insisting that they're being transparent about their approach, it's even more imperative for them to provide clear energy usage data broken down by location and make it clear the type of energy being used in those corresponding locations. Without that, it's difficult to hold them to their forecasted claims and fictitious goals. Let's just say that the corporate culture that we live in today, dominated by privatized agendas in the bottom line, transparency creates a bit of an issue. Over time, it has been clear that the absence of transparency and the use of deception often go hand in hand. Remember Twitch Interactive? They're the world's leading live streaming platform for gamers that Amazon acquired after the bidding war with Google back in 2014. Well, in July of 2020, The Verge brought to light that the U.S. Army had been actively recruiting teenagers and children as young as 12 years old while playing popular first-person shooter games. It was found that the Army bombards these kids with misleading ads promoting phony prize giveaways like an Xbox controller, but then when clicked, they actually lead them to military recruitment sign-up forms. Pretty disturbing, right? But the thing is, this isn't even new for them. Back in 2018, several branches of the military were all using streaming channels and video gaming for recruiting purposes. And in 2020, the Army finally paused its use of Twitch for recruitment, but only after a sweeping outcry when their channel started actively banning viewers who brought up topics related to historical war crimes. So with all of this in mind, last year Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or AOC, proposed an amendment that would essentially ban the U.S. military from recruiting on the Twitch streaming platform. I think it's uh, extraordinarily important, especially when it comes to emerging technology platforms, that intervention be taken extraordinarily seriously. Because once these lights are turned on, it's very difficult to roll them back. That proposed bill by AOC ultimately failed after 103 Democrats joined with 188 Republicans to vote against it. The final tally was 126 to 292. No Republicans voted in favor of it. So this combination of deception and exploitation seem to always operate in tandem. And that brings us to one of the more controversial exploitation issues, the amount Amazon pays in taxes. Yeah, and Amazon's the most egregious example where they're now soaking up $20 billion in business and causing 30% of American malls and stores to close and taxpayers are seeing zero in return. If you want to understand how Amazon pays such little taxes for being a multinational e-commerce heavyweight, you must first realize that Bezos and Amazon have direct influence on tax policy itself. We'll begin in Seattle, where in 2018, The Atlantic reported that less than a month after the Seattle City Council unanimously passed a head tax ordinance that would have charged $270 per employee for Seattle businesses making more than 20 million a year, the same council voted to repeal that very same head tax in a seven to two vote. USA Today even wrote an article detailing how Amazon helped raise $350,000 in a faux grassroots campaign called No Tax on Jobs in Seattle. Council members later openly admitted that they changed their minds in the face of a well-funded and vicious campaign that sought to put a referendum on the November ballot to repeal the head tax, a campaign entirely designed to flush progressives from office in Seattle. The council members also warned that big companies like Amazon have essentially held the city hostage by shutting down discussions to advance new revenue streams, to fund programs like affordable housing, and denied to put forward any solutions for the city's problems. After a constant stream of taxes that have done little to solve Seattle's growing homelessness crisis, local business leaders have grown tired of Amazon and other big tech companies exploiting tax policy for their own private agendas. And from a national perspective, Amazon paid $0 in federal taxes in 2017. And in 2018, 
The Observer reported that Amazon paid no federal taxes again, despite making $11 billion that year. But those numbers are much more complicated with Amazon taking advantage of a federal income tax provision of over $1 billion, and the rest of their taxes are then deferred thanks to the rules that let big corporations delay paying taxes to a later date. So ultimately, they're not paying nothing, they're paying very little, says Matthew Garner of the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. But considering what Amazon is making in profits, these figures are absurd. A year later in 2019, Amazon was on the hook for a $162 million tax bill, still just a fraction of the $13.9 billion in pre-tax income Amazon reported for the year, just over 1% of their entire earnings. This then leads us to Amazon's mechanism for influencing federal tax policy, increasing their lobbying efforts in Washington. Back in 2017, Bezos and Amazon spent $12.8 million lobbying the federal government to nudge policymakers in a favorable direction. The next year, that number increased to $14 million. And in 2019, it was almost $17 million, alongside other big tech players, Facebook and Google of Alphabet Inc. And we can only expect those numbers to continue to grow. Also in 2019, Bezos, along with those other three tech CEOs, including Apple, were summoned to testify before Congress. And Bezos himself even appeared before the House Antitrust Subcommittee for Amazon's role in creating a monopolistic marketplace for third-party merchants that they themselves compete against. The very same company that raised prices on essential products by as much as 1,000% during the pandemic. Now let's look at this powerful influence from a global scale. For some time now, digital giants like Amazon, Google, Apple, and Facebook have found clever ways to reduce their tax responsibilities to foreign governments. According to the Harvard Business Review, unlike the local brick and mortar businesses, these big tech corporations for the most part don't need physical infrastructure, factories, or warehouses to do business. Their lack of a permanent establishment makes it extremely tough for any government to fully audit or pinpoint their economic activity in a given region, adding a gigantic hurdle to calculating profits and collecting the taxes owed on those profits. You should also know that the main cost for a digital company is developing intellectual property not labor, raw materials, or energy, meaning they're very flexible with how they're able to shift their costs and ultimately manipulate their profits from a high tax country to a low tax country by relocating its intellectual property and exploiting sizable royalty payments. As a result, the main digital players are some of the largest users of innovative transfer pricing and income shifting schemes. This shift in economic activity and tax base from local companies to bigger heavyweights like Amazon has been gradually developing for over a decade. COVID just sped this up. The irony is that during COVID-19, while many international economies are getting killed, the digital oligarchy have further captured the market and revenue shares from the local business population. They are absolutely thriving in this crisis while simultaneously expediting their own global tax transformation. For example, Amazon absorbed a huge portion of profits that would have gone to local retailers who would have then paid taxes to the local governments. And COVID has also had a devastating impact on local newspapers and their advertising revenues, which have now shifted to those very same tech giants. So we can now recognize that governments are facing this Herculean task of trying to fund local recovery and welfare while not getting enough taxes from digital giants who have essentially commandeered their tax base. In the end, governments around the world have no choice but to demand that these big tech conglomerates account for at least a part of these massive budgetary deficits. Don't you agree?
It's basically the industrialization of retail. And they were the first company to really like get in on that and to figure out some kind of process to do that. And they have such a huge head start, it's really hard for other people to compete. So what am I expecting you to do with all this information? Some of it you probably already knew, I'm sure, but hopefully you learned a few new pieces of knowledge that encourage you to do some research for yourself. And yes, I may be a little biased, and yeah, the name of the podcast is Why You Should Be Terrified of Amazon, but the true goal of these podcast episodes moving forward will always be to motivate you to get more involved in the things you hear and read, to become more curious when you consume your news, and always be quick to ask yourself why something is the way it is. Over the last few months, I've done the groundwork to gather reports and published articles from a host of trusted sources. I simply assembled this particular puzzle for you, and it's time to step back and understand what all of this is pointing to. Amazon's proliferation of data points and how it uses those data points to advertise to you. Okay, now don't turn off the podcast just yet because that seems like such a mundane and unattractive answer. But let me explain how it works. Amazon knows how and when you shop and what you order online. They create and influence the news you see and the content you consume every day, multiple times a day. In some cases, they even know when you leave, what you drive, the groceries you order, the movies your family watch, and the games your kids play. There's a lot that they know about you. Jeff Bezos has engineered this vast, interconnected network of closely related products and services. Now, Amazon's able to define you with an overabundance of real-time and historical data points, then quite literally sell you off to the highest bidder, and target you for whatever cause they'd like to influence with custom messaging and unlimited testing to get the optimal desired action. It was reported last year that collecting and selling data about people is estimated to be a $200 billion business, and all signs point to continued growth. That from the Harvard Business Review, and here's how they break down the concept of mass gathering and purchasing of data points. Data brokers collect information about customers wherever they can, through loyalty cards, public records, social media posts, and most often by tracking their browsing behavior across different websites. All this tracked customer information is then fed to machine learning algorithms, which build segmented profiles of similar groups of people. These digital profiles are then packaged as audiences. Typical groupings might be fashion interested or males 25 to 54. Marketers can then buy these off the shelf audiences from data brokers for ad targeting. So what happens when they don't just wanna sell you a book or a monthly streaming service? What if they wanna start targeting children for vaping products? Or what if it's military gear ads showing up next to US Capitol insurrection posts? And yes, that actually happened on Facebook, and it can easily happen on any other site or platform that connects sites with user visits and their social media activity. Anyone remember Cambridge Analytica? This type of audience targeting is exactly what was uncovered there, but it was much more advanced. Cambridge Analytica emerged from a British company with a background in military intelligence and psychological warfare, with experience in conflicts like Libya and Afghanistan. About five years ago, it began experimenting with how you could use data taken from social media sites like Facebook to build voter profiles. Here's the Cambridge Analytica CEO, Alexander Nix, explaining the firm's 
thought process in an undercover recording. I mean, it sounds dreadful thing to say, but these are things that don't necessarily need to be true. As long as they believe you. We are working, and we can set up a guides and um, websites. We can go in students doing research projects attached to the university. We can, um, we can be tourists. Right, right. There's so many options. Okay. It was found that their ultimate advertising goal was to sway political extreme ideology along with purposely sowing discord and division between voters for the 2016 presidential election. Trump's team played these devastating implications down as best they could. But after a series of undercover sting reports by Britain's Channel 4 news investigation team, their questionable tactics were fully brought to light. But many other political campaigns and corporations have been collecting and utilizing similar information. In 2016, Republican Senator Ted Cruz was actually the first political candidate that employed the firm's advanced profiling methods. The psychological profiling got a lot of media attention after Cruz won the Iowa caucuses, especially after Nick's publicly claimed credit for the win in a series of media interviews, then was swiftly phased out. But it's not just Republicans doing this. Obama also tapped into Facebook networks for his 2012 campaign as well. Some of this might come as a surprise to you, primarily due to the fact that data points are often downplayed and exceedingly undervalued. Whether it's a public or private company, a corporation or government entity, data is the most valuable commodity. A staggering 90% of all the world's data, 2.5 quintillion bytes per day, has been created in the past two years alone, and its value is rapidly rising. Now, I'm not offering you to take the red pill or the blue pill when it comes to Amazon or any of the other big tech giants. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. And no, this isn't an ultimatum to never order from Amazon again. But the next time you need to buy a birthday gift, think about browsing a local business first or find a sustainable company or even find one that donates a portion of their profits to a good cause. Choose to support businesses that support society as a whole. And if you're not already, get more involved in a cause that means something to you. Maybe you wanna focus on fighting censorship. Amazon has actually been accused of stifling the voices of thousands of authors, and the company might be violating antitrust laws. So this sounds like a great opportunity to amplify those voices. Or maybe you even work for Amazon now and are one of the hundreds of Amazon employees that took a stand back in late 2019 and walked out of the firm's Seattle headquarters along with large groups from offices in Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Toronto, Dublin, and various other cities around the world. This mobilization was part of a global climate strike that included employees from many other companies, students, and even youth groups. The effort was planned in preparation of a United Nations Climate Action Summit that was being held in New York. And there were even international campaigns that came together to call for boycotts of Amazon during Black Friday in 2020. Hello, this is Yanis Varoufakis with a message from the Progressive International and DiEM25. We are asking you to refrain from buying anything from Amazon.com. We are asking you not even to visit Amazon.com on that day, just for one day. This campaign was co-convened by Progressive International, a global initiative bringing together progressive groups, politicians and intellectuals, which including Vikas, Professor Noam Chomsky and Bernie Sanders, and also UNI Global, a trade union federation representing 20 million workers, including the UK's GMB union. Join our global campaign to make Amazon pay. By boycotting Amazon, you will be adding your strength 
to an international coalition of workers and activists from the ITUC, UNI Global Union and Public Services International and Amazon Employees for Climate Justice. Highly innovative tech companies like Amazon must find practical and actionable ways to phase out fossil fuels from their operations altogether. Even when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing, which is possible with energy storage. Maybe climate change is your cause. And there is hope that change is on the horizon at Amazon, especially with the recent events at a warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, where workers are set to vote on whether to unionize with the retail, wholesale, and department store unions starting on February 8th. Ballots must be mailed in by March 29th, and the vote count should take place on March 30th. It will be the tech giant's first union election in the U.S. since 2014, according to Reuters. It's exciting to potentially set a precedent. Though the retail workers' union originally collected cars from a unit of 1,500 workers to get the vote, the National Labor Relations Board extended the election to 6,000 workers. So it's hard to tell if organizers will have enough time and resources compared to Amazon for organizing those 6,000 workers. So if you're already active in the things that you care about, power and props to you. You're already ahead of the game. And if you're not, that's fine. But now is the time to get involved. I mean, I'm a new father that enjoys riding his bike when he can, who's married to a healthcare worker during a global pandemic. But I merely wanted to get involved to help make a positive impact which is what spurred the creation of progressive behavior. But it's up to you to find what connects both your interests and the skills you bring to the table. And to be quite honest, it's going to take an adjustment. But our friend Tyler from the Warehouse Walkout, who in his own right is also running for city council in Maplewood, Minnesota, gives us some simple advice. Like you, at some point, you just become more comfortable being uncomfortable. So if you like what you heard in this episode, please leave us a comment and let us know. We'd really value that feedback. And if you'd enjoy hearing more of the story and other thought-provoking topics, hit the subscribe button and get updates when monthly episodes are released. And lastly, help us choose the topics you'd like to hear more about. Just go to our Instagram handle, at Progressive Behavior, and click on the link in our bio. And if you're a Twitter user, that's at Progressive BHVR, and click on that link. It'll take you to a quick 30-second quiz that tells us what's important to you, or even just send us some of your ideas. We want to hear from you. And until next time, stay curious.